This is episode 263 of Alohomora for January 19th, 2019. Welcome to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's in-depth exploration of the Harry Potter series. I'm Allison Sigurd. I am Katie Carty Hiley, and we have two amazing guests with us for this episode. The first voice you will recognize from episode 251 is Irvin, aka HP Boy 13, an author of The Life and Lies of Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I'm so happy you guys liked me enough to invite me again. <laughs> Avi, you're like one of the most knowledgeable Harry Potter fans I've ever come in contact with, and that makes me so happy. <laughs> Oh, I'm blushing over here. All of your MuggleNet articles are off the chain. And if you people out in podcast land have not read any of them, please do yourself a favor and go to MuggleNet.com and just pick one. Anything by HP Boy 13 super well-researched, super well-written, good stuff, good stuff. Thanks so much. Yes. And we have a newcomer who has not been on the podcast before. Say hello to Zoe. Hi, everybody. Uh, I really feel like you should have introduced me first because I do not have that many interesting things under my belt. (laughs) (laughs) I have really been overshadowed here. So great. Good to to meet everyone. (laughs) But Irvin has already done the whole introduction to everyone, knowing his Hogwarts house and all that, but you have not. So we get to pick your brain and get all of the details on Miss Zoe. So tell us a bit about yourself and your love of Harry Potter. Um, I'm Zoe. I live in Boston, although I am from Florida. I now say I'm from Boston. I'm a Slytherin, which I initially had a little bit of an identity crisis about. Um, but after reading the prefect letter and sort of going through, uh, some other, you know, identity stuff, I do really identify, uh, as a Slytherin. Uh, I'm a pediatric nurse, awesome. and I get to talk about Harry Potter with my patients sometimes, and it's a good, um, you know, a good introduction and something to kind of develop a rapport with. Yeah. So I'm basically Poppy Pomfrey is what I'm trying to say. And <laughs> let's see, I started reading Harry Potter. I was a latecomer because I'm not into fantasy books too much. My mom and my brother both read them and told me to read them and I wasn't really interested. I didn't start reading them until after the Goblet of Fire movie came out because I got sick of my friends and my mom telling me, oh, they didn't even get into the stuff about the giants. They left out Ludo Bagman (laughs) and this whole backstory with the goblins and all that kind of stuff. So at that point, I really started to feel like I was missing out on some details. So I read all of them in a summer, except for uh, Deathly Hallows, of course. So Order of the Phoenix was the first movie um, that I had seen after I had read the book. Um, Wow. Half-Blood Prince is my favorite book, so I'm really happy to be discussing it. I love it specifically because of all the memories that we get to see that don't necessarily center around Harry, and you get to meet these other characters and things so those are some of my favorite chapters in the whole series same girl same yes <laughs> yeah uh, i would totally agree half the print is my number one favorite book love it so yes. much 
That makes me so happy. Those scenes are second only to any of the scenes that take place at St. Mungo's for obvious reasons. I could <laughs> talk about wizard versus muggle healthcare for a very long time if you ever want anybody <laughs> um, to do that. Oh I know, God, please I know, do. I, I want to hear that. Oh my God. I can, I have some friends who are also nurses who are Harry Potter fans who could, who could really get into it. And by really, I mean, we, we have, we have gotten into it. <laughs> together. <laughs> we will have to do a whole topic on that someday. That would be amazing. I did submit it. So I've got, you know, research handy. If you ever need anybody. Sweet. Good to know. Hello, listeners. This is Patrick, the editor of the episode, and I just wanted to apparate in real quick to tell you that this episode is brought to you by the awesome new series, A Discovery of Witches. So head over to discoveryofwitchestv.com and use the promo code OPEN for a free 30-day trial of either Shudder or Sundance Now. And I'll be back a little bit later in the episode to tell you more about that. But for now, goodbye. Today, we're going to jump to Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 17, A Sluggish Memory. It's a chapter revisit day. Uh, Harry was shown this sluggish memory on January 6th, 1997. Holy crap, that feels like a long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it was. Um, that's almost... It's over 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, it's over 20 years ago. Years. I can't do this. Okay, anyway. <laughs> and so that's why we're doing this chapter to celebrate that anniversary. So make sure you read this chapter. Again, that's Half Blood Prince chapter 17 before listening. And for extra credit, <clears throat> re-listen to episode 135 where we first covered this chapter. Thanks very much, Umbridge. Uh, <laughs> that was a perfect. <laughs> And I want to let everyone know that this episode is sponsored by Nicola Poplowski on Patreon. This is Nicola's second time sponsoring an episode. So thank you so much, Nicola. We super appreciate you. You rock. And everyone else, you can become a sponsor for as little as $1 a month. Rewards include access to our private Facebook group at the $2 level, a special decal at the $5 level, and also episode sponsoring like Nicola is doing, uh, private readings with Michael at the $15 level, and vintage Alohomora t-shirts at the $25 level. You can even have a private Skype chat with the host of your choosing. So definitely head over to patreon.com slash Alohomora to see more and we will continue to release exclusive tidbits for our sponsors there and now it's time for our shout out maximas these are from episode 261 which was order of the phoenix chapter 23 christmas on the closed ward just to give you context uh, our first shout out is for griffin prefect for reminding us that neville's parents sadly do not recognize him and that there's a real life story behind joe's decision to use the gum wrappers which she revealed in a 2005 interview and they even quoted the interview so you can take a look at that on our main site if you're curious what Joe said about it. Uh, shout out for Sue for the theory that Hermione modified her parents' memories earlier than she let on, perhaps by a year or two. That was a really interesting discussion. Uh, shout out for that time Remus Wadawasi Voldy for giving us some circle theory evidence for Lupin's Wadawasi spell because, you know, they're the expert. So <laughs> who better to weigh in on that than that person. I'm not going to say your name again because it's long. I mean, <laughs> but I love it. 
Uh, next shout out is for a seeker, not a finder, for blowing some minds with their theory that the Horcrux locket could have been affecting Creature as it seems he was keeping it in his den for months leading up to Sirius's death. My mind was one of the ones blown by this. Just FYI, never had thought about the locket affecting Creature like it affected the kids. So crazy. Love it. I'm, I'm down with it. You should read the rest of the comments uh, left after that for some more context. Um, But our next shout out is for Puff the Magic Raven for using their perspective as a parent to share their thoughts on Augusta leading Neville down a dangerous path by basically telling him he has to live up to his parents' reputation. It was a really good comment. And also shout out for Grand Molly Wobbles for sticking up for Molly Weasley and asserting that they do not think she looks down on muggles. And they had a lot to say about that. So definitely head over to our main site to read all of those wonderful comments and more. Uh, would also like to give a shout out to other participants, Blood Charm, Lisa, Davy B. Jones 999, KCL, and Jones, Captain of the Romione. Thank you all so much for contributing to that conversation. And the discussion is never over on alohamarapodcast.com. So please come join us there if you haven't already. Three turns should do it. Chapter Revisit Half-Blood Blitz Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away then, my boy, ask away. Chapter 17 Sir, I wondered what you know about... about... A sluggish memory. I don't know anything about Sisquarkor, and I would tell you if I did. So let's dive into our next chapter with a little summary. With the holidays over, Harry, Ron, and Ginny return to Hogwarts for a new term. Ron and Hermione continue their spat, and Hermione shows no sign of forgiving Ron for breaking her heart. Harry reports his suspicions of Draco and Snape to Dumbledore, who dismisses them but will not reveal why. Dumbledore then continues the story of young Tom Riddle, revealing to Harry how Riddle's time at Hogwarts was spent charming his teachers while hiding nefarious deeds. In the first of two memories, we see teenage Riddle frame his uncle Morphin, and then commit the murder that opened Goblet of Fire, leading to the creation of yet another Horcrux. And in what Dumbledore calls, quote, the most important memory of all, Horror Slughorn tries to hide his shame with a confusing, cloudy, tampered recollection. Harry set a very important task, one that will change his future. I love this chapter so much. Me too. And it sounds like most of us do. So this is going to be super fun to dive into. Um, I figured the first leaping off point could just be the chapter art. Like I think we did in the last uh, chapter revisit that I was on. Um, I had explained then that I never really paid attention to the chapter art during my first rereads. And now that I do everything via Audible, um, <laughs> just listen to the audiobooks, I don't see the chapter art. So every time I have an opportunity to dive back into one of these chapters, hardcore, I make sure to pay attention to that. And this particular chapter is our one and only glance at a depiction of Morphin Gaunt. Uh, we briefly mentioned this back in episode 239, when we were discussing the first memory of the Gaunts from chapter 10. And I was curious for you guys, did your imagination's version of Morphin match this artwork or was it completely different? What did you think he looked like? I sort of imagined uh, someone taller and thinner, like a little malnourished. And Mm. um, 
as well as in terms of the face, I sort of imagine somebody like Steve Buscemi with the eyes, you know, like bugging oh out God. and sort of going in different directions, it says. I mean, in this illustration, you can't see his eyes because his hair is yeah. all in his face, but that's sort of what I always imagined. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree that I thought he was like taller and skinnier, but otherwise this is pretty close. And so, fun story, at one of my first Harry Potter conventions, I decided to cosplay Morphin Gaunt. So I just got like a bunch of really raggedy stuff and like a really like gross looking blonde wig and everything. <laughs> uh, and um, handcuffs, because, you know, he went to Azkaban and everything. <laughs> and so there I am at the convention, it's great. And people are like, oh, who are you cosplaying? And the first guest that I got was, so you're Draco Malfoy falling on hard times and into bondage. So good. <laughs> so good. Yeah, that's apparently what Morphin looks like in my mind. Great. <laughs> I'm never going to get that image out of my mind now. Thanks so much. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, personally, my imagination did pretty much match what's on this on the what's on the page there. Just kind of that big Neanderthal type um, body, but yeah, I like all of these interpretations. This picture doesn't look feral enough to me. If that makes sense, he doesn't look as uncivilized as I feel like I always thought he did. Um, uh, the, it's more how I pictured Marvolo Gaunt, actually. Yeah, yeah. Didn't it say he? It, it described Marvolo as like a with the power of like a silverback gorilla, like a powerful old gorilla. Yeah, yeah with like huge arms, swinging like gorilla arms. Yeah, yeah, very broad and interesting. Well, listeners, I want to know in the comments what you thought Morphin Gaunt looked like, or what he still looks like in your mind, because you know. It's 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 fiction. We can make him look like whatever we want because he wasn't in the movie. Okay. <laughs> and also in this art, Tom Riddle is standing beside Morphin. And I just noticed this time, to me anyway, he kind of looked like a vampire with that really huge popped collar. Did it look like that to anyone else or is that just me? Now that you say it, yeah. And his hair looks a little slicked back, kind of. Yeah. I think... His silhouette looks a lot like a vampire because it's yeah. just like, you know, the head and the collar and the nose. And... and then his shadow, it does have a nose, but just barely. It just, it really reminds me of the older Voldemort if you look at his shadow on the wall. So I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. Well, apparently noses are intrinsically tied to your soul. So the less soul you have, the less of a nose you have. There you go. Yeah, I think out. that's well proven. Yeah. <laughs> Well, once we dive into the actual chapter, we start off with the kids leaving the burrow. Uh, Ron, let's see, Harry and Jenny, right? Hermione is not with them because her and Ron are not on speaking terms. So she did not spend the holidays with them. Um, but they're coming back. Well, I'll get to how they're coming back in a moment because first there are some memorable quotes from the very beginning of this chapter that me and Irvin had to point out. Um, first one is, Mrs. Weasley saying, promise me you'll look after yourself. Stay out of trouble. I always do, Mrs. Weasley, said Harry. I like a quiet life. You know me. I love sarcastic <laughs> Harry. Uh, I love this one. I, I love how sassy Harry is in general. Yes. yes. And he's trying to make her smile because she's crying and she's so upset. 
I just love Harry yeah. so much. <laughs> and it's a lot more helpful than what Ron says. Because <laughs> um, then Ron is all like, yeah, don't worry about us, said Ron, permitting his mother to plant a very wet kiss on his cheek. Or about Percy. He's such a prat. It's not really a loss, is it? And I read that and I'm just like, that is the least helpful thing you could absolutely say to a mother that her child is such a prat. It's not a loss. Well, you have to remember what happened, what happened at the end of the last chapter. I mean, Percy showed up and was so rude, you know, and I think Molly at least has spent this time hoping that Percy would come back and would still be her Percy, you know, and he, he would want to be forgiven, but he was so rude and distant and cold. That's what I think she's more upset about than anything. And he left the house with mashed parsnips being thrown at him because he was so rude. <laughs> yeah. And he was. He credit for. And I think, I think that's almost more of what Molly's crying about is that she, she's lost some hope that Percy will come back to them. After yeah, uh, but again, saying it's not really a loss well, that out that way, like it's no. by Ron's very, very low standard. It's not the greatest thing to say, but I think again, Ron's just trying to comfort her and be like, "Mom, we just gotta let him go if he's gonna be like that," you know. He hasn't read the How to Charm Witches book yet. He doesn't understand that this is a horrible thing to say. <laughs> I mean, for a sixteen-year-old, that's he's telling his mother. I mean, 16-year-olds are very self-centered. So they're like, this is my feeling. Why don't you have this feeling as well? Yeah. So he's just explaining, you know, listen, this is this is how I think of it. Why don't you think of it this way? And uh, my brother and sister-in-law, when I was talking to them, also pointed out, uh, you know, Molly Weasley is probably menopausal or pre-menopausal. So she's probably crying at the drop of a hat anyway. Oh, that's a good point. I, I mean, if that. wizards if wizards go through puberty, they certainly go through menopause. You know, I don't sure. think that's a uh, I don't think that's a muggle thing. Yeah, no, I I'm completely on board with that now that you say it. Interesting. Um, also, I did notice because I I did read through the previous chapter um, just in preparation, and Fred calls him a prat as well um, in front of Mrs. Weasley. So. Ron is probably just like, well, Fred said it and it was okay, so I can say it too, but he's not reading the room. (laughs) He's not understanding his mom is already in tears and maybe now is not the same as it was when Fred said it. Uh, Well, I think the kids are angrier about this than they let on, quite honestly, because the Weasleys are a close-knit family. And I think Percy's siblings are really, really upset that he's gone. You know, because yeah. oh, they, I, they let on that they're upset. Well, yeah, but I, I think I think to the point where and because they're teenagers, they're like, fine, you don't want to be a part of our family anymore. Then get out and don't come back. And we're going to treat you like that. You know, whereas Molly being the mom is like, it doesn't matter. Like, you're still my kid. But I think his brothers especially are so mad that they're just like, then leave forever. Don't come back. You know, mm-hmm. Um we don't even want to hear about you anymore. We have nothing good to say about you. Get out. Which is kind of sad. It yeah. is. Can't I always, I always feel that 98% of motherhood is guilt. And all my friends who are moms agree with me. So I think that <laughs> no matter what had happened, she would have felt some sort of guilt, whether it was, you know, because of 
he's dishonoring the family or he's distancing himself from the family and it's her fault, you know, or he's doing something else. It's always going to be her fault. Yeah, I could see that too. Poor Molly. Well, the kids travel back to Hogwarts in an odd fashion after the holidays in this in this year. Um, they go back via flu powder. And I have no idea why. Um, it doesn't mention how they got to the borough from Hogwarts at the beginning of the holidays, but apparently it's not the same way that Hermione traveled home uh, from a quote from chapter 16. Um, it says, this was pure imagination. However, as he had no opportunity to tell Hermione what he had overheard, she had disappeared from Slughorn's party before he returned to it, or so he had been informed by an irate McLagan, and she had already gone to bed by the time he returned to the common room. As he and Ron had left for the burrow early the next day, he had barely had time to wish her a happy Christmas and to tell her that he had some very important news when they got back from the holidays. He was not entirely sure that she had heard him, though. Ron and Lavender had been saying a thoroughly nonverbal goodbye just behind him at the time. Teenagers are the worst. Yeah, they are. God, I can't believe I was one. Terrible. <laughs> um, and we know from Order of the Phoenix that she has traveled back via the night bus um, in previous books uh, for the holidays. So maybe that's what she used this time, or maybe some people were using flu powder and some were on the train. It's not mentioned at all how they leave the school. It's just mentioned how they get back. I wonder if, I wonder if like wizarding kids went back on the flu powder on the flu network because their fireplaces would be set up to it. But Muggleborn kids went back on the train because their parents would be like expecting that. Yeah, that makes sense. Or alternatively, maybe Harry and company are the only ones to travel via flu powder. Cause you know, a bit of extra security for Harry. But I think the way McGonagall reacts, it's too blasé when they get back because she doesn't even look up. She's just like, don't get ash on the carpet. I think yeah. that's so I think- her being fabulous. Yeah, I think McGonagall just always sort of is like, oh, you again. I don't think she gets very overexcited by by too much. Well, and it says it says the ministry had arranged this one-off connection to the flu network to return students quickly and safely to school. If the ministry's involved at this point, I think it's all kids, not just Harry. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that as well. But I'm just trying to figure out why all of a sudden. Like, I know there was the whole necklace, cursed necklace thing. But apart from that, has anything huge happened recently? Voldemort came back. Well, yeah, but they took <laughs> the, the train to the school ministry. at the beginning of the year. <laughs> right. Well, because I think because they always do. But I think things are getting dark enough. We've seen throughout this whole book that there's reports in the newspaper and parents are trying to pull their kids out of Hogwarts. There's a lot of fear, I think. And it's getting worse that by this point, the ministry being the ministry is like, well, we have to do something. So why don't we say we'll get them a direct connection, you know? Yeah, um, that would make sense. But then all the Muggleborns putting them on the train, they're the ones that Voldemort is after, apart from Harry. I mean, they're like sitting ducks. They, they probably put a lot of horrors on the train now. Like, I'm That's sure the Hogwarts has some pretty epic yeah. security now, in uh, addition to the Trolley Lady Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Which we will not be talking about. I wonder if the train was shorter then, too. You know, like, if it, if they took off some of the carriages so that if they had less students on it, they took off some of the carriages. Maybe then it could go like faster, easier. If it's not 
as long as it would need to be with everyone on it, then they could, like, protect it more, shuttle it quickly to London, and then back. Yeah. I think the Muggle students would definitely have had to come on the train because uh, in Goblet of Fire, it's, you know, Arthur makes it clear that him going by flu powder to the Dursley residence was like he had to bribe somebody or, he, you know, someone owed him a favor or something in the flu powder oh, yeah. office. Uh, and then that goes to the next question we have here is staggering arrival times with traveling by flu powder. And I think you do because... That's how Harry gets lost is not one, not more than one person travels by flu powder. Yeah. Right. Like he gets lost. Otherwise you get like multiple people in one fireplace. It just doesn't right. end well. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And like. then also in Goblet of Fire, you know, everybody ends up stuck in the flu because the, because there's a false fireplace and they're all just right. sort of on top of each other squished against the, the chimney. But I'm just, I don't know. I feel like if two people from two different homes said Hogwarts at the exact same time and tried to get into this particular fireplace, like, would it just be bumping into each other or would it be more than that? Could they like magically intertwine somehow accidentally? <laughs> I just, my I brain know. goes to Star Trek. <laughs> when I see oh like yeah, that. beam me up, Scotty. You yeah, definitely intertwine. But when Harry messes up flu powder, he goes, you know, one grade over and ends up in Nocturne Alley. Yeah, so that could happen. And yeah, then you're losing kids. Oops. Right. right. <laughs> Let's hope they all pronounced it correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and did they have to say, I mean, unless McGonagall's fireplace was the only one that was open? Because if you just say Hogwarts, who know what? Who knows which? fireplace you would end up at if all of the fireplaces were connected to the flu network i have to imagine each head of house like you know has their students fluing into their office uh, yeah yeah Before mcgonagall has like hundreds of kids traipsing through her office but if they just say hogwarts like that would where would the intelligence have to be for it to sort them to the the right fireplace i, I sort of imagine it like, it like the network regulator um at the yeah. ministry so maybe yeah. they are. It's Marietta's mom who's sending the kids right. where they need to go. Hmm. Oh, this plugging is... it in like an old school operator. <laughs> yeah. I love it. This is so interesting, and it's just something I had never paid attention to before this reread. So cool! I love digging into things like that with you guys. This is so much fun. And listeners, we all always want to hear your opinion too. So please chime in in the comments. Did you already say what you wanted to say about that next point, Zoe? Yeah, I was just just commenting about how Arthur said he had to call in a favor right, in okay. order to connect it. So it makes it seem like it's maybe not that hard, but then you sort of run into, um, you know, the ministry being able to track who uses the flu, flu network in the first place. So I'm just wondering where the regulations are. There is every, you know, is every house automatically connected to the flu network, like a phone number? Hmm. You know, you like plug in a landline and there's your phone number. Do you have to register your fireplace? I imagine because otherwise you would have to, you, anybody could just come into your house at any time. Hmm. Yeah, that's another good argument for regulators. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, yeah, people are just randomly fluing into your living room. Right. Like Dumbledore says when he goes, you know, to see Slughorn with uh, 
Harry, Harry's like, why don't we just apparate to his house? And Dumbledore's like, well, that's rude. Yeah. True. You got to give him a chance to slam the door in your face. (laughs) (laughs) Or hang up on you. I think this is a Pottermore thing. Um, Irvin, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there a story about a witch who was upset with her boyfriend or husband or something? She went to flu somewhere else, I think maybe to her mother's home, and she accidentally, because she was crying, she said something wrong and ended up in this random man's house. I mean, he was a wizard, but a random wizard's house, and she ended up falling in love with him and just staying with him forever and leaving her ex or whatever behind. Oh, that, that does sound really like a Pottermore story, yeah. I think that's a thing. So again, I, it's Pottermore, yeah. so take it with a grain of salt. But that does kind of raise questions. Like, can you just accidentally hop into somebody's home? Hmm. Or on purpose. Or can, like, can children, you know, when they're, I'm going to run away from home, you know, in that phase, <laughs> can they just grab some flu powder and, you know, oh throw God. it in there? and? Oh, you know. wow. Yeah. You know how children, like kids will kids will pack a bag and run yep. away and get halfway down the block and then be full of regret because they didn't pack a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> See, I never did that as a kid. Um, I didn't it's either. It's like one of my big regrets that I never <laughs> ran out of I came close. Um, I mean, I was like 21 or whatever, but I did pack a bag before revealing to my mom that I'd gotten a tattoo just in case she kicked me out. I wanted oh, to good, the bag good out. I didn't want to like pause to pack my things and then storm out right so was it okay in the end um it was okay in the end okay, um she good. just did the usual like but what if you stop liking harry potter and i'm like i'll be fine yeah yeah not gonna happen. i'm gonna get a deathly hallows tattoo soon myself nice you'll have to send us pictures i will well then the kids arrive back at hogwarts um and hermione is already there And Zoe, you had something to say about this. Yeah, I can't believe she actually went home for the holidays and didn't like skip out on her parents (laughs) because I don't know, like how, how do her parents not mind that every chance she has to go home, she goes somewhere else, you know, because all the, all the only children that I know are very close to their parents because they're all they have. Mm. Um, No, as an only child, I'm going to refute that. Is that true? Yeah. Like, I, I 100% would spend all the holidays with my friends if I could. And there are plenty of holidays. So I, I get Hermione. But are your, I'm sure your parents are still upset about it. Yeah. But, like, right. my mom doesn't do anything about it. Oh, yeah. My, my other theory was that, you know, both her parents are dentists. So maybe they just appreciate that she's ambitious. Because I'm sure she always tells, her, tells them, oh, I have a school project to do, I need to go back to school early, all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure they're like, oh, yeah, you work really hard, whatever we need to do to encourage your educational ambition. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, they what's best for her. And I think they realize that, like, she's a part of this world now that they can't be a part of. And so they just have to, you know, let her go. Like, you know, when they uh, did try to, like, be a part of her world and go to Diagon Alley with her in Chamber of Secrets, they were terrifying. Like, terrified. Um, and then they met the Weasleys and they're just like, okay, she's in good hands. So just, yeah, Godspeed, Hermione. <laughs> sure. I do think they would have been upset in Order of the Phoenix. Like, that's the one that I always thought was, like, really harsh. Because that's the first Christmas she's going to spend with them since Sorcerer's Stone. 
And then she just ducks out early. She's like, skiing's not my thing. I gotta, like, go study. And then she goes and deals with Harry's emotional issues. Like, (laughs) that one seemed especially rough. Yeah. I do feel for her parents, but I definitely agree with you guys that I believe they're doing this for her benefit. They're seeing this as what's best for her future. And for her future, she really does need to immerse herself in the wizarding world because that's where she's going to end up. She's not one that's going to go through Hogwarts and then be like, nah, that was fun, but I'm just going to live like a muggle for the rest of my life and forget magic exists. So they want her to, to succeed and have all of the opportunities that she can so yeah, I I get it. But yeah, it would I think as a parent it would probably I'm not a parent, but I'm saying <laughs> from the perspective of a parent it probably would be difficult to watch that happen even though you are supportive of it at the same time. As I said, parenthood is 98% guilt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then Harry is starting to talk to Hermione about the whole Draco and Snape conversation that he overheard um at Slughorn's party because Ron is off with Lavender. Um and Hermione yeah. remembers something that you call Urban. Yeah. So um, Harry says Fenrir Greyback, and Hermione remembers that we've heard Fenrir Greyback before. And Harry's like, when? History of Magic? You know full well I never listened. And she's like, no, 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 not History of Magic. And I just love that Hermione has just officially given up on admonishing Harry and Ron for not listening in class. Like, <laughs> totally given up. character growth on her part, because she's always... Even in Order of the Phoenix, she was like, honestly, Professor Flitwick mentioned, you know, Galbraithian fire twice in class. And (laughs) Harry was kind of like, you think we have nothing better to do than listen in class? Right. (laughs) I think this part just officially giving up on them ever listening in class. It only took five years. She's completely accepted the responsibility of always being the smartest person in the room. You would think she'd just want to embrace that sooner rather than later but you know she she wanted to help her friends because they're lost without her but you right know, now she's not wanting to help ron i really get hermione like when i was writing my book about dumbledore my editor kept being like urban remember not everyone has read these books every single year 17 times and i'm like <laughs> well what is that? yeah then this book is not for them <laughs> yeah. i'm just like well they should yes, yes. So I I get Hermione. (laughs) Totally. But even after all of this evidence that Harry has amassed, she still is not willing to completely be on his side and believe that Draco is up to something. Like she, I think she at least um, agrees that yes, he's up to something, but she doesn't think it's anything serious. She doesn't think it's anything to worry about. Um, Just tell Dumbledore and be done with it. Um, And Harry says, you're unbelievable. You are said Harry, shaking his head. We'll see who's right. You'll be eating your words, Hermione, just like the ministry. Which just makes me sad, knowing what happens at the end of this book. And she probably is a bit heartbroken that she did not listen. Oh, she 100% is. Of course she is. But if I was Hermione, I probably wouldn't believe him either. I'd be like, you are super dramatic right now. You are super obsessed with Draco Malfoy. He's an idiot. He's proved over and over again he's an idiot and he's not actually capable of, you know, he can't put his money where his mouth is. And, you know, he's completely ineffectual. Even if he is up to something, he's not going to achieve it. It's sort of like the epic twist of Half-Blood Prince that Joe did so well. 
Like, the twist was always that, like, you think Draco or Snape are up to something, and then it turns out they're not, um, and it was someone else entirely. And I feel like the fans were, like, so on top of it by Half-Blood Prince that Joe's like, the twist this time is, there is no twist. It's actually Draco. Actually, yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) And she got us. She got us again. Oh, yeah. Every time. Every single time. (laughs) I don't know if I'll ever be getting used to that. Okay, guys, I'm back to tell you more about the awesome new series, uh, Discovery of Witches. But first, I want to tell you how awesome Shudder is. When I found out that we were getting this sponsorship, I asked if I could do this ad personally because I legitimately love Shudder. Look, we all love Harry Potter, but sometimes you want to step into a darker world. Sometimes you even want to step into a world that makes you feel a little bit guilty for being there. That's Shudder. If you guys don't know, Shudder is a really cool streaming service that specializes in horror and suspense movies and TV shows. And they also have a bunch of really cool podcasts, including original content that you can only find on Shudder. But I wanted to tell you guys about some of the really cool content that Shudder has. They have a bunch of really cool movies, like I said, including some recent stuff like last year's really bonkers and controversial Nicolas Cage movie, Mandy. Uh, And they also have the most recent Rob Zombie movie, which you can only watch on Shudder. And that movie includes really cool special features, uh, including commentary and stuff like that. But they don't just have new stuff. They have old stuff, too. So they have some of the classics, like the original John Carpenter Halloween movie from 1979. Uh, They also have some really cool Asian cinema, including a few of the uh, very famous or infamous Takashi Miike movies. And they also have what is, in my opinion, one of the great, truly great movies of all time, Old Boy. You can also stream one of the greatest vampire movies of all time, Let the Right One In, which is based off of a really cool Swedish book. Now, along with all those movies, they have a bunch of really cool series, too, including Black Lace, True Horror, Channel Zero, uh, a really cool Swedish series called Jord Scott. And they have exclusive access to one of my absolute favorite series of all time, Todd and the Book of Pure Evil, which if you guys don't know what that is, think something along the lines of Degrassi mixed with, I guess, kind of like a campy B-movie horror slash uh, teen comedy type of thing. It's absolutely incredible, and I highly recommend that. Uh, All this stuff you can watch on Shudder right now with the free trial that I'm going to tell you about in a second. But one of the best series they have is a new one that just came out called The Discovery of Witches. And it's produced by Bad Wolf Productions, which are the people behind the upcoming His Dark Materials uh, show, which we've mentioned a few times on Alohomora before. It's based on the awesome All Souls trilogy by uh, Deborah Harkness. And the show is very cool. It reminds me of a mixture of True Blood, Underworld, and a little bit of Nightwatch. It's set in our modern time, and it's about how sort of magic in the world is failing, and they don't really know why. So it's about witches, vampires, and other demon-like creatures. And it's about this woman who discovers this really ancient book that's been searched for by a bunch of people over the centuries. And she basically opens this book, and a bunch of crazy stuff starts to happen, leading to all sorts of interesting debacles that they have to deal with the one of the things that stands out to me the most about the show is how awesome the cinematography is the lighting in particular is really incredible the sound design being an audio editor of course i pay attention to stuff like how they make the show and and the sound design in particular the sound design in the show is awesome there's a lot of really cool music that really adds to the tension of the show from the minute the show starts you get this sense of intrigue and 
the uh, locations and everything kind of pull you in. The music really adds to the suspense of it. You know something's coming because the music is building. And it's a cool mixture of sort of symphonic and choral elements with cool synthetic stuff. And then on top of that, they throw in every now and then some really cool modern pop songs or sort of acoustic folky stuff that really adds to the tone of what's happening in the scene. Uh, basically just great sound design throughout. I could go on and on about the show, but I don't want to give too much away. The really cool thing is even though season one just came out and all eight episodes are available right now on Shudder and Sundance now, seasons two and three have already been greenlit. So it looks to me like they're going through the entire series here and they already have a plan. And that's something that's really important to me. I hate it when things don't end and they just keep going forever. Kind of like the Harry Potter universe. But this looks like they've got a plan for the beginning, middle and the end, which is very exciting to me. Now, the coolest thing about all of this is that everything that I just mentioned is available to you guys right now for free. All you have to do is head over to discoveryofwitchestv.com and use promo code OPEN for a free 30-day trial of either Shutter or Sundance Now. So that's discoveryofwitchestv.com and the promo code OPEN. So please go do that. Honestly, you will not be disappointed. There's a lot of awesome content there for free. So go check it out. But now, back to the episode. I'm out of here. Uh, next thing that happens is there's sign-up sheets in, I believe, the common room for the students to sign up for apparition training or classes, uh, because once they turn 17, they can take the test to be licensed to apparate. And everybody is super excited um, by this prospect, as anyone would be. I wish I could apparate. That would be amazing. Um, it's basically driver's ed. Yes, you're right. That's for exactly wizards. what these classes yeah. are. Um, but they're signing up for the classes. And then Ron tells someone that Harry has already apparated via side-along apparition. And they're all like freaking out. Like, what? Really? You've apparated before? What was it like? What? Tell me all about it. Like all day long, he's answering people's questions about side-along apparition and how apparating feels. And I'm like, wait. And he's like, he came from, um, well, was raised by a muggle family. All of these, you know, people who have wizard and witch parents have never apparated with them before. That seems really unlikely to me. Well, I think, first of all, in Goblet of Fire, Arthur mentions that there's so many people traveling by portkey and other methods of uh, transportation because apparition is difficult and, um, you know, uncomfortable. Yeah, and I imagine so it's even that. more difficult and uncomfortable when you have other people you're dragging along. And, you know, yeah. I, especially if I'm a parent, like, I splinch myself, you know, damn it, if I splinch my child, <laughs> you know, the guilt we were talking about, like, yeah. <laughs> okay, good I point. Think that, <laughs> really good I point. think that that's very, I think that's very likely, because just like you see, you know, kids at the mall or in other public areas where, you know, if you try to hold their hand, they're going to shake you off. If you have a leash, you know, you see those kids on leashes or like mm -hmm. strapped into strollers, then you know where they are. So if you're trying to spin a child and apparate with them and it's very uncomfortable, they're going to be trying to get away from you. Yeah. Which is dangerous, as you said. I guess I was thinking more like teenager because, um, yeah, child, I wouldn't do that either. It would scare them to death. But by the time they're, you know, 14, 15, which I, yeah, I guess Harry was 15 when he did it with Dumbledore. Um, or wait, has he turned 16 yet? No, he's 16. Sorry. But yeah. around this age, 
you would think it wouldn't be that weird to say, hey, we're going to go visit Auntie blah, 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 who lives on the other side of England. Let's just well, operate. Well, if we visit Auntie blah, 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 we flew into her house. Uh, like true. sort of, and, and You don't see your kids as much because they're like in Hogwarts for 10 months out of the year. And sort of anywhere you got to go, you can probably flew with them um, or like right. take a port key to the Quidditch World Cup. Like, I think it just sort of doesn't come up much. But, like, you have to pay for flu powder. Apparition is free. <laughs> yeah, but on Pottermore, didn't it say flu powder is, like, super cheap? Flu powder is very cheap, so get yes. over it. True. <laughs> very true. Well, speaking of sassy people, you noticed something else in this yes! chapter. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so, uh, Seamus is so excited about Apparition he, like, waves his wand and sends a jet of water at Professor Flitwick. So, quote, <laughs> Professor Flitwick had dried himself off with a wave of his wand and said Seamus lines, I am a wizard, not a baboon brandishing a stick. <laughs> that that must not have been Seamus's first uh, infarction. No, <laughs> I can't semester. imagine it was. But I, I just love, like, the sassy Hogwarts professors. And I know that, like... McGonagall is super sassy and we love her for it, but I feel like Flitwick gets underappreciated for his sass. I would agree. He doesn't get nearly as many opportunities to be sassy, but dang it, if he doesn't do a good job when he tries. <laughs> Amazing. Yep. Well, next we head on to Dumbledore's office uh, because it's time for Harry to have another meeting with him and he's super excited, which so are we as the reader. Like, yeah. what's he going to learn this time? And we've yeah. got a couple of memorable quotes at the beginning of this chapter as well. Okay. We can go just like the entire thing. Like Dumbledore's sass factor is also sky high here. Yes. And just... <laughs> yeah, the beginning of this section is just one right after the other. It's amazing. Um, so the, the first one I noticed was talking about um, Scrimger, right, and Harry's mating with him and that Scrimger didn't like him or whatever. Um no, sighed Dumbledore. He is not very happy with me either. We must try not to sink beneath our anguish, Harry, but battle on. <laughs> I actually use this, like, in my conversation. Like, right? whenever I want to be sarcastic about something, I'm just like, well, I'll try not to sink beneath my anguish. <laughs> <laughs> that should be somebody's tattoo. <laughs> Don't sink beneath your anguish. <laughs> um, and then right after that, um, he accused me of being Dumbledore's man through and through. And Dumbledore says, how very rude of him. <laughs> so adorable. But then, I know. I love Harry's reaction, too. And yes. his reaction to Harry. Yes. Harry says, I told him I was. Like, not expecting. <sighs> Dumbledore is tearing up and Fox is crying and I have all these feelings. Right. It's like at the end of Half Blood Prince when Dumbledore says, "I'm not worried. I'm with you." Oh my god! Oh my god! That is like my favorite line in this book, and oh my god! Yes. Yeah, I think that's along the same lines in terms of feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And so then um, Harry is talking about the Daily Prophet, and Dumbledore is like, "The Prophet is bound to report the truth occasionally, even if only by accident." <laughs> Yeah, some somewhere in all the BS, there's something. Yeah, I just I, I love that we are finally seeing like unfiltered Dumbledore. Like this is what he thinks of Scrimgeour. This is what he thinks of the Ministry. Like <laughs> what he thinks of Daily Prophet, and it's great. 
Yes. Well, he knows he's a dying man. He's got, you know, he's got nothing to lose now. He might as well just tell the truth all the time. True. Exactly. Um, and then a little bit later, when Harry's like, sir, but did you understand? And Dumbledore says, yes, Harry, blessed as I am with extraordinary brain power, I understood everything you told me, said Dumbledore a little sharply. I think you might even consider the possibility that I understood more than you did. <laughs> Bam. Mic At drop. Mic drop. <laughs> love so it. Good. Like, I love that Dumbledore, like, doesn't bother with false humility. Like, I love yeah. that about him. That he's like, I'm brilliant. Like, I know it. You know it. Let's move on. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Poor Harry is trying to get anyone, everyone, to take him seriously with Draco, and nobody is having it. And he's just fuming. But at least he does have the maturity at this point to say, okay, clearly this is not going to get us anywhere. Let's just move on. <laughs> and let's see what happens next. Um Oh, right. Dumbledore is describing Tom Riddle when he arrives at Hogwarts when he was a kid and his observations of him as a student over the years. And there wasn't much really to tell. Um, Just that he was a total creep. <laughs> but it is interesting that Dumbledore is saying that, Tom, well, for one, that he did not warn any of the other teachers about his impressions of Tom when he first met him. And I do think he made the right choice there because if he had turned out to be a good kid, you wouldn't have wanted their impression to already be negative. Um, Honestly, though, that is the most unrealistic teacher thing I've ever heard in my life because you bet yourself we talk about every single one of our students and we all know <laughs> what's happening. Yeah. Oh, oh, we all know. Every single problem kid, especially, we all know. But every other teacher loved him. Yeah, you Dumbledore is sort of looking out for his own image, because otherwise you sort of end up being like Snape, where everyone's like, oh my god, that Snape guy, he's ridiculous, like he has it out for Harry. Mm, uh, good point. Nah, no, because we all do it. We talk about our favorites and we talk about our least favorites all the time. I know, you probably diagnose a whole lot of mental illnesses yourself. Huh? <laughs> we go through, oh my gosh. There is a lot. Yeah. There is a lot. You're probably like, this kid's definitely a sociopath, right? Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, and I just love Dumbledore's description of um, Riddle's friend group, the early Death Eaters. It's just so spot on. It's, quote, a mixture of the weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and the thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. Like, I read that and I was like, damn. Yup. Oh, that's it's so a good very writing. like I've referred to that so often in my essays because I'm just like, yeah, like there you have it. Absolutely, it's a very sort of cult like description, um, as well mm. as like a like a dictatorship, you know, like fascism. You know, there's one leader and everybody's sort of like, well, I got to protect myself. I don't want him to come after me. So I'm going to get in there, you know, or maybe I can share in that power or like, oh, I just want to beat people up. Man, this guy's going to let me beat people up. Yeah, it, it's really a perfect way of looking at, you know, really, you know, at organizations of really bad people and being like, oh, like, that's what's going on. Like, there's the thug, there's the weak, and there's the ambitious. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you pulled that quote out because I read it, but it didn't pop out to me the way it did to you. But now that you've read it and I'm thinking about it more and what you said, Zoe, I'm like, oh, God, yeah, that's a, that's a great quote. <laughs> I'm really glad you pulled that out. Yeah. 
Well, it yeah. first popped out to me when I was um, thinking about Grindelwald, you know, before any of his crimes came to light. <laughs> um, like, I was so into Grindelwald as a villain because he doesn't fit any of these. Because he's an ideologue. I was like, I cannot wait to see how Rowling writes a villain who actually believes what he's selling. Because uh, I absolutely do not believe that Voldemort is, you know, actually into what he's selling. Like, Voldemort is in it for the power. Yeah, um, right. You know, for immortality. But Grindelwald, like, genuinely believes that, like, muggles should be subservient. And so I was so excited. And, well, we all know how it turned out. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Because there is something in this chapter that ties back to that film, or, well, should tie back to that film and doesn't. But anyway, yeah. we'll get there. Um, the next little section describes the links that Dumbledore has gone to to discover more about Voldemort and to get these memories. And I pulled out a quote here. Uh, says, I have not been able to find many memories of Riddle at Hogwarts, said Dumbledore, placing his withered hand on the pensive. Few who knew him then are prepared to talk about him. They are too terrified. What I know, I found out after he had left Hogwarts, after much painstaking effort, after tracing those few who could be tricked into speaking, after searching old records and questioning muggle and wizard witnesses alike. So my first question about this quote. Um, when do you all think Dumbledore started gathering these memories? Could it have begun like as soon as Voldemort disappeared after trying to kill Barry, um, baby Harry? Or later, sooner? What do you think? I feel like it was when uh, Harry brought him the diary, actually. Be I think he really in earnest started then because he talks about that later. He says, you handed me evidence that he started doing this. Mm. Maybe some of these early ones he started gathering before, like when Voldemort was first powerful and he was looking for a way to bring him down. But I think the ones specific to Horcruxes he started getting after Harry handed him the diary. See, and I think that he was probably searching as soon as Harry fell and he actually had a minute to himself. Because sort of once Harry re-enters the picture, Dumbledore is sort of like going a mile a minute and keeping all his plates spinning until he dies. Yeah. Um, you know, say he Harry brought him the diary, yeah, and then a month later, Sirius Black broke out of Azkaban. Um, and then the Triwizard Tournament happened. So I think Dumbledore was sort of just doing his basic research and getting memories sort of all throughout the 80s. And then I think he, like, went hardcore into it um, in Order of the Phoenix when he got kicked out of Hogwarts, and he's like, oh, good, I actually have time on my hands. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's probably true, because I think when Harry gave him the diary, up until that point, I think he was just keeping very, very close tabs on Voldemort. Um, I think he probably had an inkling that he had um, that he had killed his uh, father and his muggle grandparents. I think that's the kind of thing that uh, Dumbledore would have known about, because if if Tom Riddle didn't know anything about his family, Dumbledore was probably like, huh, where does this kid come from? Yeah. And that's thing. I don't think he that. was looking for Horcruxes. I think he was just like looking for Tom Riddle's backstory, you know, doing his due diligence. Yeah. Yes. Cause I'm pretty sure in book one, Dumbledore says like at the beginning, he does not think that Voldemort is gone for good. He is going to come back yeah, at some point. Exactly. So yeah. he knows and this is going to be a threat that returns. 
And the other thing is Dumbledore did not get these memories like, you know, prepackaged into, you know, seven very helpful memories that show exactly what you need. Like he must have searched like hundreds of memories, spoken to dozens and dozens of people. Like this was an epic project. It's not something you can do in a few months. Yeah. Right, because one memory leads to one idea and maybe searching down and narrowing down situations and people where you could find out more about that idea leads you in a completely other direction. And then, you know, and then by by that time, you know, probably behind a cabinet, Dumbledore's got one of those uh, police serial killer maps with all of the <laughs> all of the red string going in every direction and trying to connect the dots. I love it. <laughs> A map with little Hangleton and the, you know, the cave and the. Oh, I want that so that. bad now. I want to see oh, that. Oh, me too. Oh. That's amazing. Well, he mentions in that quote that a few people were tricked into speaking. And I'm curious, do we think that he's referring to simple tactics like he did with Mrs. Cole, just getting her drunk? Or was he perhaps using stronger tricks? And if he was okay tricking people, why not just use legitimacy and read their minds? I think he probably did use legitimacy. Yeah. But but a lot of the uh, people he would speak to would be accomplished Aquamans. You know, I'm sure Slughorn is not susceptible to legitimacy, for example. Yeah. We also know that Dumbledore was really good at uh, manipulating people like i don't think that he sort of met mrs cole and went in there with the idea that he was gonna get her drunk to talk i think he recognized something about her that was like oh this lady will this lady will talk if i give her some drinks yeah and then, the it's like it's probably you know someone who likes to drink or who right. needs to drink rather. yeah so i think he probably you know just judging on his what he knew about the person or what he had surmised about the person because i think he is a very quick judge of character i think he can tell things about people and he can play to their uh weaknesses or um you know their needs in some way in order to get them to talk and we do know that he did use legitimacy when it was an option because later in the chapter um when he's talking about morphin he says it took a great deal of skilled legitimacy to coax the memory out of him and I can't see Morphin being the only one Dumbledore did that with, because in the last book, we Dumbledore says he used legitimacy on Creature. And as I was writing my book, I sort of tried to keep track of where Dumbledore is clearly using legitimacy. And it, I'm pretty sure that he used it on Harry in Chamber of Secrets and Goblet of Fire. I'm pretty sure he used it on Sirius in Prisoner of Azkaban. I think legitimacy is definitely, you know, a tool in Dumbledore's arsenal. Yeah. I'm just also thinking, I guess... If he's, if he's starting to do this throughout the 80s, if he's starting to try to track down these memories and get this information in case Voldemort comes back or for when he comes back, at that point, I wouldn't feel like people would be too scared to talk to him or to give him those memories unless they are just as um, suspicious as Dumbledore that, yes, he's definitely coming coming back. But I feel like a lot of people were in denial and were like, no, he's gone. Yay. Party time. What? Well, the fear of his name didn't go away. I can't imagine the fear of him did. Mm, good point. Yeah, there's still sort of a, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, jinx on the, you know, the taboo on his name that, okay, well, we survived that and he's passed us. And so we don't have to acknowledge that terrible time in all of our lives. And then the other question I always had about people who knew Voldemort in school was, does Hagrid know that Tom Riddle became Lord Voldemort? Maybe. Hagrid went to school with him because Tom Riddle's the one who reported him for Aragog and accused him of doing the Chamber of Secrets. Right. 
But yeah, he, I don't think he so, ever actually refers to Voldemort as Tom Riddle or, or says anything about Tom Riddle. So, and I feel right. like he would have mentioned it like I was expelled because of Voldemort. Like, I feel like that would have come up. Yeah. Yeah, right. Hmm. Maybe he doesn't know. That's interesting. Just speaking of kids who went to school at the same time as him, because was he in his third year um, when he got expelled? Yes. Yeah, Hagrid was in his third year and Tom was in his fifth. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like he would have known Tom. I guess if he was in his fifth, that would have been the first year he was a prefect and would have known a lot of people from outside of his own house. But I just always wondered about that. And if Hagrid had any other run-ins with him, you know, if, if Riddle kind of picked on him or, you know, was mean to him or did stuff to him other than the accusation. I don't think Tom would be the type that would be like, you know, James and Sirius going around just cursing people or jinxing people or whatever. He's, I feel like, he would be much more reserved and hang on to things like that when he really needs it. Yeah. Because he wants all the teachers to think he's this perfect boy and would never do anything bad, anything wrong. Um, Yeah, he'd be crueler than that. It wouldn't, like, just be, you know, a jinx. Yeah. Um, It'd be, like, psychological messing with people yeah making them doubt themselves and think they're worthless and etc so you can control yeah. like if if i can sort of make an analogy um jessica jones season one um killgrave he never just tells someone go kill yourself it's always like a really twisted creative way to hurt or kill the person i, I feel like voldemort's sort of in the same vein hmm I don't know that reference, but I will take your word for it. That sounds right. I do, and it's terrifying. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Like, I love David Tennant, and I was like, can I love you after this show? Yeah. Like, I watched that, like, with my friends, like, under a blanket on the couch with lots of tea, and oh my god, it was awful. (laughs) In the best way. Yeah, I can't watch stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to check that out. Well, speaking of memories, we do get into the memory of Morphin Gaunt that he was able to extract while Morphin was in Azkaban just within weeks before he died. Um, I wish we knew what year that was, but he doesn't talk about when any of this happened, sadly. But that's Oh, just... wait, wait, wait. Because um, I've been looking up the timeline all week because I also got really confused about it. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was too. Um, so Dumbledore says that um, this happens in Tom's 16th year. So oh, no, he would have been. I know when 15. that happened. I'm curious when Dumbledore went to Azkaban and got this memory from Morphin. Oh. Uh, yeah, that yeah. we don't know. But yeah, I was also getting confused with that year because he was 16. Yeah. The way he, when he turned 16 at the very end of a year, it's. Oh, it made everything so confusing because it felt like. Oh, he's 16. He must be in his sixth year. Before the Chamber of Secrets stuff. Right. Uh, Yeah, Chamber of Secrets was his fifth year, or end of his his fifth year, and then this happens in the summer after that. I want to know when the sluggish memory is. Mm. Um, We do know. It's right after, it's after, soon after uh, Riddle kills uh, his grandparents and takes the ring, but before he makes it into a horcrux. Do we know that? Yes. Well, we can assume that. Because he's wearing the ring. Well, yes, he's already killed He's them. wearing Morphin's ring. He's already a horcrux. I no, was but, under- no, but he doesn't. He doesn't. We know, we know 
that he turns it into a horcrux slightly later because he goes and hides it and he's no longer wearing it. But but we don't know that he just immediately hit it right after making it a horcrux. It's never explicitly stated. Well, but I think we can assume it's not because he specifically asks Slughorn, can you make more than one? So he's made one. And I think he's waiting to make the one with the ring until he knows, can I do this? And then he does it when he figures out he can. And then he goes and hides it. But the ring would have been his first Horcrux. No. No, the diary's his first Horcrux. No, it's not, because the diary takes place at the end of his fifth year, and he murders his parents before his fifth year. No. No, it's it's, it's before his sixth year. Yeah. Yeah. It's his 16th year. They, he specifically says he's 16. No, his 16th year is when he's 15, so it would be before his fifth year. No, he's 16 the year, the second semester of year five and the first semester of year six. He's got a similar thing to Hermione, where he his birthday's in late December, so he is all he is um ahead. He's kind of the opposite of Harry. He is older in his class, yeah, but only by half a year. Again, he he turned sixteen in his fifth year. Right. So if he murdered the Riddles the summer of his fifteenth of his sixteenth year, that would be when he's fifteen. That would be before the fifth year. I think we're getting confused um, yeah i think the, way- the timeline i always get turned upside down when i try to think of the order yeah. of things um because i think you have to put information from like multiple books together almost and so because he's the di- the riddle diary riddle that comes out of the diary is 16 years old yes. um so if again he makes it during his 16th year and the chamber was opened towards the end of his fifth year. He's, he is 16 at that point. Um, right, which would be his 17th year. What? Are you <laughs> saying 7th or 17th? If Not, you're 16, you are in your 17th year. Get it? But I'm pretty sure when they're saying his 16th year, they're talking about the year he was 16. I disagree. I think that means the year he was 15. Oh, no, hmm. I don't think so. Well, our listeners can weigh in on that in the comments. Yeah, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but... Whenever this happens, um, yeah, okay, we, yeah. we don't know when Morphin dies. We don't know when uh, Dumbledore gets this memory. But that's okay. It doesn't really matter. I'm just curious. But uh, when he does get the memory and we see that it's been, or not that it's been tampered with, but that he doesn't remember something after a certain point. He remembers up until, you know, Tom comes into the house, they have a conversation, and then everything goes black. And that's all he remembers. And that's after Dumbledore has to sift through, you know, the fake memories that Voldemort placed there to find the real one underneath. Um, but anyway, from this memory, whether he's 15 or 16, he's underage and he's doing yeah. magic in a not predominantly wizarding community. So I'm like, why doesn't the trace just send off alarm bells all over the place because he's stupefying his uncle, he is killing people, and then he is modifying his uncle's memory all within like one day, one day or one night, I'm assuming, but several hours apart. Um, each one of those should have had someone from the ministry either sending a, a, a letter or someone showing up, something. What do y'all think about that? Yeah, until you asked, I never thought about it, but then we, like, got into it in the planning doc, and yeah, this is worth investigating. 
And Dumbledore kind of explains it away. He's just like, well, it's like Dobby, you know. They knew that magic had been done in that residence, but they didn't know who did it. And I totally understand that. But that doesn't explain away the underage thing, because Morphin is not underage, and he does not have any children. And there are no other magical children in that town that we know of, or magical families, period. So, yeah. That- so, yeah, alarm bells should have been going off. Um, I think, like, and I just thought of this theory, like, this week, I think the neatest explanation is that Tom Riddle uh, figured out a way around the trace. We know he's one of the most gifted wizards, you know, of his era. Mm-hmm. So I think he just found a way to sort of, you know, turn off the trace or fool the <gasps> trace somehow. I just had a and thought. It, oh, yeah? What if he takes an aging potion? Do you think that would fool it? Uh, I, I think he certainly did something because I don't think he would be so foolhardy as to, like, I don't think he would forget about the trace. I think he would have to do something. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's, we know that the ministry assumes it's Morphin because he already attacked Tom Riddle Sr. before. Correct. And he admits to it. So I think it depends on how the trace works, though, too. Does the trace only work when a muggle is in the presence of magic? Right. Or does it work no matter what? Because otherwise, then any kid in a wizarding home does something magical and the trace is going off. That's crazy. That'd be too much. Right. So my thought... Whereas if its purpose is just to make sure muggles don't find out, then they assume, okay, if it goes off and there's an adult there, then that adult can take care of it. But this always sounds like more of like a little bit of prejudice to me here where the ministry finds out this happens. They know Morphin's there. They know he's gone to Azkaban Fort before. He admits to killing them, and so they just kind of take it. Right. I was thinking that it's not nearly as, like, powerful and as comprehensive as we think. And so I was wondering if the underage wizard trace is the same as the magic in front of Muggles trace, if it's sort of around the same thing. And I think it would probably take a lot for whatever alarm bells to go off that magic is being used when or where it's not supposed to be used, like inappropriate magic is happening, and then you have to narrow it down to the location and see what's happening. And then if you investigated very far, like far into it, then maybe you could narrow down whether it was underage magic or magic in the presence of muggles, but maybe Mm -hmm. because the muggles were dead, they know that it was magic performed in front of muggles. Right. And sorry, where are you getting this whole detecting magic in front of muggles thing? Because I always thought that magic detected in front of muggles was just part of the trace for underage magic. Right, that's what I'm wondering. I, I Yeah, that's what I'm saying, is if it's not a separate thing, then it's down to the situation and how far they want to dig into a situation. Like, my understanding of it was always that if there is... Um, an underage person and there's magic happening around said underage person, then the ministry can tell, you know, what the magic was, who was there, et cetera, et cetera, which seems like a lot of surveillance. Correct. That's sort of how I read it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because then if, you know, the underage kid is in a magic home, then there's just lots of magic, you know, Lumos, Nox, Asio. Um, So the ministry is just like, yeah, okay, whatever they can (laughs) deal with it. Whereas if it's in, you know, not a wizarding household, then they are privy to all magic going on, you know, whether or not there are muggles there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which again makes me think that Tom Riddle would have hoodwinked the, the trace because otherwise the ministry would be privy to the fact that murder happened, yes. you know, in Little Hangleton. So like whether someone was underage or not, like they should, you know, have alarm bells going. You right, because think. otherwise they wouldn't have been monitoring Little Hangleton. They wouldn't have realized that because, I mean, lots of deaths are suspicious and, you know, leave no, uh, for lack of a better word, trace of who committed it or how or <laughs> whatever. Funny. So how would they how would they have, you know, how would they have known that there were murders in Little Hangleton unless there were alarm bells going off somewhere or unless they put extra surveillance on the town because a wizard attacking a muggle had already occurred there. Oh, no. Hold on. I'm going to disagree with that. I think there's 100% like an or task force that investigates like mysterious deaths for magical malfeasance. Sure. I wonder how long that takes. A big responsibility of the ministry to like, you know, keep up with magical deaths. Did it say it was like the next day that they showed up and arrested Morphin or does it even say how, how much time went by? I don't remember. It was pretty soon. I think he just says soon, you know, they were, I can try to find it. Yeah. It's, I feel like Joe tried to explain all this away um, by mentioning the trace and mentioning the Dobby situation and things like that to try to make us think, Oh, okay. Never mind, and just move on and not question it. Yeah. I feel like that's why she put that in there, even though it's it does not explain it away at all. If you actually think about it, yeah. Um, quote. So the Muggle authorities were perplexed. Um, the Ministry, on the other hand, knew at once that this was a wizard's murder. Um, they also knew that a convicted Muggle hater lived across the valley from the Riddle House. Blah blah blah. Muggle hater already imprisoned. So the Ministry called upon Morphin. They did not need to question him. So basically, it makes it seem like the ministry, you know, was just on top of the situation. Um, you know, right they away. found out about the murder and they're like, no, 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 that's Savada Kedavra. Okay, so it's probably the next day because that's when the, I think it's the maid discovers the bodies and goes running, screaming through the town. And so law enforcement would have been called and there's probably a wizard in like a plant in the law enforcement. Um, so they, they hear about this and they check it out too or they once they hear about it they're like oh i know exactly what that was and then they look into it um but also why did they not look into who was murdered and who they could be related to i think because morphin admitted to it and they were like oh he attacked that guy before oh yeah, yeah it seems like an open and shut case that's true dang it <laughs> i think that's it poor morphin so much injustice but yeah yeah and, and like sense. Dumbledore says that, that like whatever Morphin was, he didn't deserve, you know, what happened to him. Yes. Well, what's your theory about the Riddle House, Zoe? So I've thought about this a lot. And again, this is like a timeline issue. So I'd like you guys' input on when this might have happened. But I have a theory that Dumbledore bought the Riddle House at some point. I think it may have been, um, I think... It was certainly um, after the riddles were murdered. I think before that, I think Dumbledore had also looked into Tom Riddle's heritage and learned that he was a gaunt and learned that his father was this muggle, you know, Tom Riddle. I don't think that would have been that hard to, um, you know, figure out. And 
um, later, uh, is it in Goblet of Fire? I think it's in Goblet of Fire where they're talking about it, where a mysterious person, uh, a mysterious man owns the Riddle House and nobody knows who he is, but they think he owns it for tax purposes, which sounds like the kind of rumor that somebody would start like, oh, well, why would somebody buy a house and not live in it, but keep it, you know, keep the landscaping up? Like, why would somebody do that? Mm-hmm. So that sounds like the kind of thing where they would say, oh, well, you know, it, it's probably for tax reasons. If Dumbledore and, owns the Riddle House, I can't see him, like, sort of letting Voldemort and Death Eater set up shop there. Yeah, I wonder how but he often knew, he checks it. He knew, yeah, how often he checks it. Um, and I think even if he, if he knew they were setting up shop there, if he knew that he was living there during Goblet of Fire, if he also had an inkling there were Horcruxes, he would know he couldn't just ambush him and kill him and get rid of him because there were... You know, by that time, he had an inkling that there were multiple Horcruxes, and he couldn't have done that. No, but he could definitely stop Voldemort from resurrecting. I suppose mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. Like, you get there, you know, you, you know, kill Nagini, you know, imprison Wormtail, um, you know, blast the baby Mort to smithereens, and set <laughs> yourself another decade. I suppose that's true. My other thought was that... Um, just because Dumbledore is an eccentric kind of guy, I can see him, you know, reading The Economist and reading The New York Times and just thinking, you know, it's time to diversify my portfolio. I should probably <laughs> attain some property, you know, some place to store all my knitting patterns. He just seems like that kind of pragmatic guy. Like, I should have a fallback, you know, like maybe wizarding pensions are not great. I like that. It just That's seems amazing. like the sort of thing that... Dumbledore would do, in, in addition to his knitting patterns and other magazines <laughs> that he probably subscribes to. Just for I fun. Love, yeah, I love theories like this. But that's, but that's a good point if he, because I was thinking he knew about the murder of Frank Rice really quickly. So maybe he was just keeping a very close eye on the town, but not necessarily owning the house. But I do think for some, like maybe he visited the town occasionally and he heard Frank Rice died, but he didn't think to check the house which seems unlikely as well but that's a good point yeah uh, but I, I i do like that theory i think we should definitely look into that mysterious tax man yep definitely <laughs> well and Irvin, you noticed something else in this memory that we should point out i did um it was sort of very interesting what i caught it um so when morphin is ranting about Maropi, he says dishonored us she did that little slut so i th- like, thought about it and dove into the text. Morphin is the only character in the entire books to literally slut shame uh, by using the word. Mm-hmm. But there is only one other character in the book who slut shames, and it is Ron Weasley. Uh, because three chapters earlier, uh, when Ron and Ginny are having their big blow up when Ron found Ginny making out with Dean, Ron is like, Do you think I want people saying my sister's uh? And it cuts off. And I think the proximity of that together, I think it's Joe sort of very clearly stating which side of Ron and Ginny's argument we're supposed to come down on. That if Ron's thought process here is similar to Morph and Gaunt's, I think it's obviously wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can all agree that slut shaming is bad, but uh, 16-year-olds would be very quick to do that. And Morphin was obviously delayed in his uh maturity so i think any any women that they had a problem with is automatically you know a 
a skank or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought it's interesting that like none of the other characters, and there are you know plenty of reprehensible ones, um, ever actually go there. That it's only Ron and Morphin. Uh, uh, didn't isn't there a funny part in one of the books where uh, Ron calls? It might be Goblet of Fire when the rumors are going around in the Daily Prophet, but doesn't Ron say something like, "Oh, they're gonna think you're some kind of Scarlet Woman." Oh yeah, and he's like, "That's well, that's what my mom calls them." So maybe he was gonna say Scarlet Woman, which I suppose has the same intent behind yes. it. But I recall that. Oh god, I just picturing Ginny's response to being called a Scarlet Woman. Yeah, <laughs> she would laugh her butt off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I just think Half the Prince actually um, spends a good bit of time showing Ron's less admirable qualities. Yeah, um, and that. That was among them. For and sure. somehow, whenever I go on your guys' podcast, I discuss Ron interfering with Ginny's love life. So I guess that is my shtick on Alohomora. <laughs> big brothers are a big pain. I, I can, you know, that's their, it's their job, I think, to interfere <laughs> in their sister's love life. Apparently. But Ron's the only one that does it. Like, the, the yeah. twins don't care when Harry's around at the burrow with Ginny. It's just Ron. So well, doesn't it seem like, uh, doesn't it say something about Ginny taking after uh, Fred and George yeah. more than Ron? So I think Fred and George are like, ah, it's not, you know, it's not worth it that much. But they do inquire about all of her, uh, you know, dating when she's shopping at Weasley's Lizard Weezes. And they're like, uh, haven't you been going out with like six boys? What's your problem? Yeah. Well, it's very blasé, like. And a few chapters earlier, you know, Fred's like, there's this pretty girl in the shop, thinks my tricks are like actual magic. <laughs> right. What about the trace there? Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> it must just be an underage thing, because you're right. If that was uh, magical artifacts. That was the uh, muggle card tricks that Fred and George were selling in their shop. I see. Yeah. Uh, okay. But that's a really good catch that those two things happen so close together in this book. I did not put that together. So that's super cool. Thank you. I tried. <laughs> well done. So then we go to the next memory, which is Slughorn's memory, but it's his modified one. It's not the actual memory. We don't get that until a bit later in this book. Um but at the beginning of this memory, he's thanking Tom for some crystallized pineapple that he gave him. He's like, you are right. It is my favorite or something. Um, thank you very much. And probably not. But this is just something that in the back of my head, I've always wondered if um, Tom Riddle perhaps laced it with something. Maybe not Veritaserum because that would turn him into a robot from what we've seen from other people who have drunk it. But um, something else that would loosen his in- inhibitions a bit to make him a little more talkative about a subject like Horcruxes? What do y'all think? I can't imagine Slughorn wouldn't be on top of that. And I also think all you need to get Slughorn talking is crystallized pineapple. <laughs> I agree. That's a good point, too. Crystallized pineapple and attention from one of the students that he, you know, most admires. Yeah, because yeah. we actually see it um, when Harry is trying to get the memory from Slughorn and Harry's like, oh, you know, do, do we use potions or whatever? And Dumbledore's like, no, like, don't use magical means. It's fine. <laughs> and yeah, Harry's just like, OK, here's a bit of booze and let's talk. Right. <laughs> booze is magic, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In this book, it is. There is a lot of alcohol in Half the Prince. Yeah, now that you mention it. <laughs> 
There's one, uh, I'm a nurse in the recovery room. This doesn't have much to do with anything, but there's one uh, anesthetic um, sort of uh, anxiety med that they give to people before surgery, and I like to call it friendship medicine. <laughs> what is this friendship medicine? I want some. <laughs> it's called Versed, and even the most angry, wrestling hulk of a toddler will want hugs from you after they take this medicine. It's wonderful. Wow. I'm guessing there are side effects from taking it long term. Otherwise, like every child would just be on this constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Not recommended. Stinking side effects. Um, Yeah, I I think I do agree with you guys. It's just always in the back of my head, like maybe, but I think I brought this up in the comments of of one of the past episodes and someone else was like, you know, I don't think Tom would... well, I don't think a stoop is really the word to that, but he would be so confident in himself that he wouldn't think he needed to resort to something like that. And I agree I with agree. that sentiment as well. I think he wouldn't have tried unless he was sure that he could handle the situation. Yeah. He would have prepped himself a lot, probably. Well, Zoe, you have some really great points here about his memory um, and why it's super fuzzy and low quality. Um I'd love for you to talk to us about that. Yeah, I think you guys talked about it a bit on the first um, episode that I uh, listened to, the first time you went through this. Um, yeah, you guys you guys talked about the consistency and quality of memories, about how easy it is, you know, even for us to sort of rewrite our own histories, mm-hmm. um, especially something traumatic. You know, very quickly we can sort of uh, rationalize it in our heads or... Um, try to erase it completely or just remember it differently so that you don't have to pay that much attention to it. Yeah. So I think he, I think soon after the conversation, I'm sure Slughorn was like, oh, I, you know, Hagrid, Hagrid style, I shouldn't have said that. I should not have said that. <laughs> um, and I think when, um, when Dumbledore initially asked him about it, I think he was probably like, oh, that conversation, you know, never happened. Actually, I don't know what you're talking about. But when Dumbledore convinced him, I think he rewrote it in his mind very hastily because I think he probably had pushed it back into the back of his mind to begin with. And then when he brought it forward, he was like, oh, no, 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 not that, not that. And so I think that's why it's so low quality, because I think they did that really well in the movie, um, where sort of the, uh, you know, it got very muffled and fuzzy um, and, you know, stuff like that. So I I think denial and shame and hastiness is why it turned out so low quality like that. So I I was just going to disagree that it was a hasty rewriting. I thought that was Slughorn just genuinely trying to rewrite his own memories to, like, escape his guilt. So, like, he wouldn't remember that so he could sleep at night. Um, Hmm. And that, yeah, yeah, he didn't do a very good job of it because I think that's really, really, really hard magic to rewrite your own memories. That's a good point. I feel like rewriting someone else's would be easier, maybe. Right. And that's what I was going to ask, too, is how does a memory modified by the person who experienced it differ from a memory that was modified by someone else, like Morphin's memory or every time you obliviate a muggle? Hmm. And I think the difference is intention, um, because I think Dumbledore also, 
I think one of the first memories of his own that he shows Harry, he says something very proud about like, oh, my memory's amazing. I think you'll find it uh, very accurate and rich in detail. I think that's just Dumbledore having style. (laughs) Well, right, but he intended on, you know, as it happened, did he save the memory right away into the pensive? And that's why it was so clear and accurate and rich in detail. But I'm also wondering if it's just the intention behind it, because I was talking about this earlier today. I think even in modern witchcraft, um, or maybe not modern, all all witchcraft, but um, everything I've read about... uh, and sort of learned is that the most important thing is the intention behind it. It's not just the spell or just the motion of the wand. It's focusing and concentrating on that thing and only that thing, which I think is why Dumbledore is such a powerful wizard, because I think he has honed that ability to concentrate and focus so cleanly and block out everything else from his mind in order to do that. So I'm wondering if intention is the difference between modifying your own memory to deny yourself in some way or rewriting a memory and being like, okay, this is really important. This person has to really forget this. Yeah. I I imagine it would just also be harder to rewrite your own because, like, you need to be thinking about what you're rewriting, right? Like, if it's someone else's, like, you can think of, like, here's what they think, here's what I want them to think. Whereas if you're, you know thinking about what you yourself need to think and want to think. And yeah, I imagine it would be a lot harder. Right. Because someone else's memory, you can just erase and then replace it with a new one. Right. Do we think that's how it works? Yeah. So you just like, Oh, I'm going to erase the last 10 minutes and then maybe I replace it or maybe I don't. And I confuse all the muggles at the Quidditch world cup um, because they've been obliviated too much. (laughs) Um, But you're right. I think rewriting your own is like, you know, the truth, somewhere inside you and do can people obliviate themselves like you know uh sort of what slughorn was trying to do uh just didn't do it very well yeah right Hmm. like eternal sunshine eternal sunshine of the spotless mind style (laughs) yeah i'm kind of in two minds with this um one if he were doing this so that he could sleep at night like you said I feel like he would have just gotten rid of the whole thing, the entire conversation, instead of leaving bits of it behind. And the fact that he left in the word Horcrux. Um, I feel like he was giving Dumbledore at least that much um, to go on, but just without the maybe, rest of it. Maybe to prove his innocence in the whole thing. Like, look, he asked me. He even asked me directly. And I, you know, shut him down. Mm. Yeah. And I'm inclined to attribute that to the difficulty that, like, pretty much all he could do was erase a few lines of dialogue at a time. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I take that. And let's see. Oh, you had a really good question as well about this, Zoe. Oh, yeah. How was Dumbledore so sure that 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 particular memory would contain that information how you know i that's the information that he wanted to get out of it clearly i think he says um that he wanted to know the number because he already knew there was multiple but what if tom riddle didn't say anything about the number and what else could he have said that would have been a clue to add to the scavenger hunt well i think this was sort of um the the only place Dumbledore had left to look 
like at this point, Dumbledore knows that Voldemort has multiple Horcruxes. He knows sure. that Voldemort, um, you know, he knows a bunch of candidates for the Horcruxes. You know, he knows the diary, the ring, the locket, the cup, um, Nagini. Um, like all he needs to know is the number. He needs to know like when he's done. Um, and right. sort of this was the only context in which Voldemort would say that. I, I think this was sort of Dumbledore's Hail Mary of, well, if it's not here, then we're flying blind. Yeah. And so if if the memory didn't contain the number, would he I wonder if he would just guess seven because it is the most powerfully magical number? Yeah, I think he either would have guessed seven or he would have just tried to take out as many as he could think of and then, you know, kill Voldemort, hope for the best. Yeah, right. That's all he really would be able to do if he didn't have the number. Yeah, well, which is and why I, this memory is so crucial because, mm-hmm. yeah, it impacts I a think lot. it was a... I think it was a big slip for Tom to even show his cards that much and ask about a specific number. Oh, absolutely. Instead of saying, instead of saying, well, how many could one make if one wanted to make more, you know, or like, what's the most anybody's ever made? You know, like he could have asked it in a much more roundabout answer. So I wonder if he just got so excited like he like he really wanted to know the information that he just sort of blurted it out. Well, for, first of all, yeah, he got really excited because we see him do that with the parcel tongue thing in the orphanage. Right. Yep. But I also think, you know, he's 15 or 16 at this point. He does not know that someone will literally be hunting down everyone's memories of his teenage self to bring him down. Yeah. Like, right. I, I know he's in Tom Riddle has yeah. an outsized sense of self-importance, but I feel like even that would be a bit of a stretch for him. Yeah, because regular teenagers already have that air of invincibility it's like it's why they're at risk of sort of uh you know self-harming activities because they think nothing's going to happen to them Mm. so on top of his regular arrogance which is sort of that side of his maturity of being like oh nothing's going to happen to me because i'm amazing it's also well nothing's going to happen to me because nothing's going to happen to me that's a good point, because yeah. I've always wondered why he didn't kill off Slughorn. I would feel like that would be... I think he knew he was weak. It, it would have been on his to-do list, but not very high. Yeah. Right. I think um, your theory is probably right, that he just didn't think in his wildest dreams that anyone would ever go to those lengths to try to find this information out, or that they would never even know that he did one, much less more than one, Um because he, he yeah. would have thought, oh, that's the most brilliant idea anyone has ever had. No one could possibly right. think of that except for me. I think if Tom Riddle ever, um, if Voldemort ever finished his to-do list, you know, take over the Ministry, kill Harry Potter, you know, take over Hogwarts, I think eventually he would get around to just killing everyone who ever knew him as Tom Riddle. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he just never quite got that far. Yeah. I think he would have, I mean, like at the beginning, uh, you know, I think he would have tried to recruit Slughorn, and Slughorn is one of the weak who would be looking for protection, and he would have just said, oh, y- yeah, sure, sure, uh, just don't kill me, and I'll do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also a bit of the ambitious seeking shared glory. Yes, yeah. Ob- yeah, obviously, yeah. Well, your next question is also really important, Zoe. Um, what would Dumbledore have done if... Harry wasn't able to retrieve the memory at all. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of 
wondering if he would just assume there was seven Horcruxes and just keep hunting them down, um, like Irvin said. Um, you know, but I think he knew he was on a um, he was on a tight timeline because he knew he was dying. So I wonder, you know, exactly, you know, what was on his to do list in terms of narrowing these things down and maybe how many more uh, avenues he had to get to, because it seems like he had exhausted a, a lot of them. He had been working for a long time and got loads of memories that more than he probably shared with Harry, for sure. Ah, well, luckily, I've written a book on the subject. <laughs> yes. I have not yet read it, but I listened to your episode about it, and I was like, oh, I gotta get that book. Same. Yeah. It's on my list. Dumbledore is my... He's my favorite character. Oh, same. Like, I'm actually working on the second edition. I'm, like, revising it and everything. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Okay, I'll wait for that, then. Yeah. Also, when you do read it... um. On my website, lifeandliesofdumbledore.com, I have, like, all the links and references and everything, so you can just follow along there for oh, your cool. reading ease. Awesome. Great. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, uh, so Dumbledore, I think next up on his to-do list, sort of once he took out the locket, I think he would have just kept hunting the Horcruxes as much as he could until he died. I think next on his to-do list may have been speaking to the Grey Lady about something of Ravenclaw's, because I always thought that was, like, a bit of a slip-up on his part. Like, really? You didn't want to ask Helena Ravenclaw about, like, what happened? Yeah, he could have done it at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he was, you know, getting to it. He had a lot on his plate. Because he also had to, like, teach Harry all this stuff. Sure. Yeah, that's true. He needed someone to continue on after he was gone, because he knew his time was very limited. Yeah, and I do think he must have still thought he had more time, obviously. Like, he thought the, you know, the the disease from his hand, you know, from his hand injury would kill him rather than being killed at the, you know, at the hands of, uh, you know, Snape or whatever. But actually succeed at getting Death Eaters into the castle. Um, yeah, and I right. think it's also important to note that <clears throat> he said Harry this task because this was a very valuable skill for Harry to have, sort of coaxing people to talk about Tom Riddle who were reluctant to share information. Like, we right. see this come in handy later on when Harry is able to talk to the Grey Lady and he, like, knows how to, you know, wheedle it, wheedle the information out of her. And so I think this was also Dumbledore, you know, teaching Harry the skill as well as trying to get the memory. I think yeah. eventually Harry had failed. Dumbledore would have just gone to Slughorn being like, okay, here's what's up. Like, give me the memory. Uh, but again, he still had time. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if maybe, you know, why he was so sure that Harry would be able to get it. And I was wondering if he knew that Harry had won Felix Felicis on the first day of potions class. Like if maybe Slughorn had mentioned that to him and was like, oh, Harry's amazing at potions. He won Felix Felicis. And maybe he would have suggested using it if it had been a long time and Harry wasn't able I wish to he had just suggested it? that from the beginning. <laughs> I know. I, I think he put more faith in Harry's, you know, ability to convince him just naturally. I think you know, so, the fact too. That like really loved Lily and everything. Uh, because also, he does stick Harry on him at the very beginning of the year. Yeah. Um, so he knows Harry's good at getting his stuff out of Slughorn. Right. That's why I think it would have been his maybe eventual suggestion. Yeah. Hmm. He does waste a lot of time obsessing over Draco. Oh, Harry. Yeah, it's a huge waste of time. <laughs> it's all the whole Horcruxes versus Hallows again, or before. It's right. Yeah. The precursor. Yeah, to Horcruxes that. versus Draco. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> but I, I think that's also like one of my favorite things about Half Blood Prince is how like 
all this is going on, but it's still very much like teenagers at school. Like, right. mm-hmm. yeah, like the state of the world rests on Harry's shoulders, but also like he's really concerned about Ginny's love life. True. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're easily distracted for sure. Yes. I was wondering if maybe also Dumbledore, just because he, you know, you talk about Dumbledore, the puppeteer and everything like that. Like if he had already manipulated the situation so much that he just knew that Harry would get this memory because he knew it, because it had to happen, and that's it. Right. It's going to happen because it has to happen. Like, right. right. Yeah. And I think he I think he knows Harry really well, and he knows Slughorn really well. So I guess he he sort of knew the extent of to which Slughorn would want to get to know Harry. I don't know. But yeah, it, it had to happen because it was going to happen, or it's going to happen because it has to happen. Yeah. Um, if I can actually share a pet theory of mine, I believe that Dumbledore asked Slughorn to come back to Hogwarts before Harry's fifth year. Yeah, it seems like he had been trying to convince him for a while. Oh. Well, also, I think that's how we got stuck with Umbridge. Oh, good point. Oh, because he took too long to find somebody. Umbridge is literally hired. Like, they sent out the, like, class list, like, August 31st. Like, Molly Weiss is like, okay, I'm going to go to Diagon Alley, and then tomorrow we're boarding the Hogwarts Express. So I think Dumbledore was literally just, like, stretching it, the timeline, like, trying to convince Slughorn, and then eventually it was August 31st, and the Ministry stepped in. Because, like, Dumbledore would have really wanted to keep Umbridge out of Hogwarts, and he had the whole Order of the Phoenix be like, hey, Kingsley, want a job for a year? Like, <laughs> Yeah, right, that's true. Um, so, yeah, so I think Dumbledore's been after this for a good long while. Yeah, I subscribe to that. I like it. Yay. <laughs> well thought out. Well reasoned. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well reasoned. Did you have one more question about this memory, Zoe? You know, I just, I just always remember, uh, you know, Harry chanting in his head, like, uh, you know, the locket, the cup, something of Gryffindor's or Ravenclaw's, the locket, the oh, cup, the yeah. snake, something of Gryffindor's or Ravenclaw's. And so that must have been the same things that Dumbledore was focusing on. But he would have known about the diadem. Like Irvin said, mm-hmm. he just really dragged his feet on it for some reason, I guess. Like, I have to imagine that, like, the one that would really trip the Dumbledore up is Hufflepuff's cup. Like, th- th- there there was no way Dumbledore was going to get to that one. Yeah, it's amazing that he got that memory. Oh, my God. Without that's that. that's actually my favorite memory really? in this book is, um, oh, what's her name? Hebsiba With the Smith. house elf. Yes, Hepzibah Smith. That's a, that's my favorite one because I think it shows the true extent of Tom Riddle's creepiness and manipulation of women and, you know, his eyes flashing red more times than before. So I think he was sort of like at the end of his, um, nearing the end of his quest for his number of Horcruxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one's so creepy. Yes. That's my favorite one. Super, super creepy. Yeah. But yeah, like the Hufflepuff Cup, that's the one that's just like sheer dumb luck that Harry overheard Bellatrix. Like, yeah, right. There was no way they would have known to look in her vault. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, this was not a sluggish episode, even though it was a sluggish (laughs) memory. (laughs) Ah, I see what you did there. (laughs) You guys were both amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Poor Allison had to skip out a little earlier on. So if you haven't heard her voice in a while, that's why. Um, But 
I'm so glad that you two are here. And this has been a very eye-opening conversation for me. And I hope it has been for you as well. Yes, I had so much fun. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You both are fantastic. So our next episode, the topic is going to be movie adaptations. So if you are like me and you love the Harry Potter films, you should definitely tune into that one. I'm sure they'll be talking about how they differ from the novels and really doing a deep dive on different aspects of movie making and all of that as well. Uh, if you would like to be on the show like Zoe and Irvin, you can visit our website at alohamorapodcast.com and choose be on the show. Just follow the instructions to send us your audition. Um, we've also updated the topic list, so be sure to take a look and see if there are any upcoming topics or chapters that you are passionate about that you'd like to audition for. You can also visit the topic submit page to tell us what you would like us to talk about. Um, and you can say whether or not you want to be on that episode or not. Um, either way, you can tell us what you want to hear. And to be on the show, all you need is a computer, a microphone, and a pair of headphones. And if you're chosen to be a guest, we will walk you through the rest of that. Um, our contact information, you know our Twitter, but I don't think we've mentioned recently that we also have an Instagram that is the same handle. It's at MN. So check us out both on Twitter and Instagram at that. On Facebook, we are at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. Our website is alohamorapodcast.com. On YouTube, we are at youtube.com slash alohamoramn. And our email is alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. One more reminder to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash alohamora. Huge thanks again to Nikola Poplowski for sponsoring this episode. And you can sponsor us for as low as a dollar a month. So just be sure to check out that link and look at the higher tiers and see what speaks to you. We would love to have you be a part of our community. Um, so thanks so much for listening. I'm Katie. I'm Irvin. And I'm Zoe. Thank you so much for... The heck am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) It's getting late. Okay. Uh, Thank you for listening to episode 263 of Alohomora. Dumbledore. Leap. I thought we were yeah. trying to be PG thirteen. Yeah, me too. No. <laughs> oh, believe me, I'd be swearing if I was allowed to swear. I know. I, I'm trying. I'm trying so hard here. We can do it. We must rise above our English. That's right. <laughs> nice. Um, that's the episode. I feel like that's the episode title. <laughs> I think we've nailed it. Awesome. <laughs>